This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. For every architect and designer, there are objects out there that resonate with them in a profound manner and can even shape their design philosophies. These can be buildings, products, even materials, but no matter what you call them, they are objects of design. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to talk about a handful of seemingly random things, but they aren't random at all, are they, Andrew? No, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew and I have been working on a list of what we are calling objects of design. And these are all things that we feel have some design sensibility to them that speaks to each of us in some special way. Might be about the materiality, the design philosophy behind the object, the effort reflected of the construction of that object. Really, it can be almost anything as long as it was special to us in some sort of way or it has a really cool story behind it. I'll be honest with you. Everything that's on my list like resonated. It didn't take, it wasn't really hard for me to come up with the three things that I chose, but it just so happens that the three things that I chose are crazy stories behind them. Yeah, and I had a lot more difficulty with this thing. I'll be honest, if you would have given me the first part of this, I might have changed my mind a little bit. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, I would have, I think I might have picked different things. I just picked these things because I thought they were interesting. I don't know that they've shaped my design philosophy anyway. No, that's fair. I mean, I think they're interesting objects or interesting things. I guess a little of both. Well, I wonder sometimes if, like, I would say that these things on the surface haven't really shaped my design philosophies, but. With the time I spent researching it and kind of reading up on it, sometimes when I first found out about it, it resonated in some sort of way where it's entirely possible that some piece of that has stuck around afterwards and put a different kind of design process procedurally in my head. When I look at the work of others, it's just like looking at what other people do and going, that's really amazing. And without even really realizing it, it's in your design toolkit as a consideration on what you do moving forward. Yeah. That's really all I mean. So the rules for this episode are simple. Andrew and I were each tasked with identifying a handful of items that we think are worthy of being labeled objects of design. And we're going to present them in alternating fashion and discuss it back and forth at the same time. But we are going to be keeping score because in the end, I want my list to be better than Andrew's list of garbage. I don't think that's going to be hard. (laughs) Everyone's so, they're like, we're in for the whole thing now. They're on the edge of their seats waiting for me. They're just going to fast forward through my parts. (laughs) I bet that's not true. I'm afraid you're going to out inquire me. You've got these TMZ stories for all your stuff. And I'm, (laughs) I'm kind of just, you know, a regular reporter here. I'm not on the same level as you. Well, I'll confess this now, but I'll, I'll bring it up before each one. But we'll cut it out later. (laughs) for two of the three someone else turned me on to the story or the product like it wasn't something that i just stumbled upon and went oh my god that's amazing i have to learn more and then i discovered this the backstory of this it had more to do with someone else like the very first one i chose well here let's just get into it what do you say okay yeah let's get into it so the first object of design on my list is the Eames Plyform Leg Splint. And 
it wasn't even my radar screen until maybe 15 years ago. There was a friend of mine that I worked with at the time. His name's Scott Taylor. And he actually wrote a handful of posts on my site. He's a really clever person. He's one of the most creative designers that I've ever worked with. And he is the one that showed me that, hey, Ray and Charles Eames designed this leg splint. What do you think? It's pretty cool. And I looked at it and I was like, that is cool. So then I started to do a little more research and to find out part of what makes it cool is what it is, how it exists, why they did it, and how they did it. So I don't know how many people are familiar with the wooden leg splint that Ray and Charles Eames designed in the early 40s, but because I think there's some interesting background information on this particular one, we need to know some of the history first, okay? Yeah. I'm trying to remember when I first found out about that. I don't remember exactly. I owe mine all to Scott Taylor. So Ray and Charles Eames met each other in the late 1930s at Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan, because that's where Charles was the head of the industrial design mm-hmm. department. And Ray was a student there. And Ray found herself on a team, which included Charles Eames and Aero Saarinen, and they were working on a submission to the Organic Design and Home Furnishings Competition that was being hosted by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And the design that they submitted was an armchair that had a single piece of plywood molded in three dimensions, or three you know, like directions, the X, Y, and Z yeah, axis. The chair they submitted actually took first place, but it was too complicated for mass production, which was really the goal that that team had for their design. I imagine that was a disappointment, but I mean, how would yeah, you you're not excited be... you won, but then now nobody can make your chair. <laughs> yeah, right? That's like kind of a high and a low at the same time. So Charles was married at this time. He was married twice. So his first wife, he was married to her, but... He divorced her, and he and Ray were wed in 1941. Mm -hmm. And as soon, maybe not as soon, but soon after they were married, they moved to Southern California, and they settled in the Los Angeles area where, I mean, I imagine part of it was, hey, we're over on this coast, and I'm divorcing my wife, and I'm marrying my ex-student. So... I guess it makes sense to maybe move to the yeah, other side I think of the country. There was a little bit of stuff involved in that. I think they intentionally left to go to the West Coast. I wouldn't doubt it. But that worked out really well for them because when they moved to LA, they started to make friends with people like John Intenza, who was the publisher of Arts and Architecture magazine, which is actually where Ray would end up working while Charles had a job working in the art department at MGM Studios. So they're both doing their own thing, but they're married and two designers working together. But they still had that, I'm sure the sting or that low of the competition they won was still something that they were really interested in. So when they were in LA, they built this machine that was titled the Kazam machine. Yeah. And what's funny is if you actually go and look up anything on this Kazam machine. It's a piece of junk. (laughs) I mean, you think it's put together with like cardboard and tape Uh is what it looks like. But the name of it actually has the exclamation mark in it. So it's Kazam exclamation mark. That's funny. It's not just Kazam. It's Kazam. Really. I'll find a picture, hopefully, and I'll put it on there that I can use. (laughs) And so this is how this machine worked. 
basically they would start with placing a sheet of wood veneer into the machine, into a mold, and then they would put some glue on that and they would just keep repeating this process sometime between five and 11 times. And then they used a bicycle pump to inflate basically a rubber balloon after the machine had been clamped shut. And the balloon would push this wood against the form that they had made. And then once the glue was set, they would take it out and they would cut it. They use a handsaw to create the final shape. And then they would sand it to mm-hmm. make it smooth. Presto, there it was. There's actually even stories of, I guess this machine took a lot of power, like more than you could get if you just plugged it into your outlet in the wall. And so there's actually, I don't know if they're an urban legend or not, but there's stories that are told, not from Charles, I don't think he ever told this story, but other people said that he climbed up the power pole outside of his apartment where he and Ray were living, and he tapped into the transformer to directly wire the Kazam machine. So he's like jacking power off the pole. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, it's funny to me because they made it in their apartment. Like they had a two-bedroom apartment, and they built this thing inside their house. Yeah, bedroom number two. It's Yeah, it's yeah. manufacturing in there. So here it is. It's 1942 now. They've been in L.A. for like a year. You know, this is not that much longer. It's probably early 42. Pearl Harbor was in December of 41. And so America was really gearing up for getting involved mm-hmm. in World War II. So unfortunately, like with all wartime activities, things like materials start becoming scarce, but things are needed. When you go into production mode, all of a sudden there's things that go, we need this, we need that. And people kind of step up to say, I can make that. I can help you with this. So there was this doctor who was in the Navy. Actually, he was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy Reserves, a guy named Wendell G. Scott. So the idea for this leg splint really was kind of his idea. And he heard about this molded plywood process that Charles and Ray were working on. So he got an introduction. And his idea was that the existing splints that were used in the U.S. Navy had proven to be poorly designed. They endangered the people who were injured by how they worked and how they tied people off. There's comments about people losing circulation. They were heavy. They were unwieldy. And so he went and met with Charles and Ray and said, I think that we can take what you're doing and we can make something here that would be better. So Charles and Ray had created this great design for what this leg splint would end up being. And I have all kinds of facts and figures I'll get to because they're really cool, but I want to finish the story first. But financing, like it seems with all things, was kind of an issue. So to solve their cash flow problem and the fact that they couldn't get their hands on the materials they needed, they formed a partnership with the aforementioned John and Tenza from Art and Architecture magazine and this guy, Colonel Evans of Evans Products, who was was a giant U.S. company in the wood products hmm. industry. I really wanted to know more about this, and I haven't been able to find it, but it sounds like in, as part of this partnership, what Ray and Charles got was cash flow and manufacturing and production. You know, they're able to take it out of their apartment and go to the facility. A factory, right? Yeah, that, <laughs> somewhere do you do it? <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. But they had to give up the patents for the design of the product. Yeah. And one of the other things that came out of it. So a lot of times this leg splint is actually called the Eames Mm Plyform leg splint. And 
Plyform was the name of the company. The Plyformed Wood Company was actually the name of this new partnership between Eames's and John Intenza oh, okay. and Colonel Evans. That was the name of the company. Because of this new partnership they had, they could really focus on producing these leg splints in like huge numbers because they had secured a contract with the U.S. Navy in November of 1942. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this was really moving pretty fast. Yeah, pretty quick. Yeah. And it was all based on a prototype of the first leg splint that was made, and it was based on Charles Eames's own leg. And there's stories in there about when he was making the cast for it, it pulled out all his leg hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. By this time, Charles had actually left his position at MGM Studios to concentrate on this work, and he'd pulled in some other people like Harry Batoia. I've actually read that name a thousand times. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. So now they had the financial support. They had the production facility. This meant that they'd be able to address their production needs, which we kind of talked about mm -hmm. earlier. But it's estimated that by the end of World War II, that they made 150,000 splints. That's a lot. That is yeah. a lot. Here's the thing that really kind of cracks me up about this whole thing is that you can go buy these leg splints. I won't say they're even that hard to get because they're out there. So if you decide that you want to go buy one because you, like me, think they're cool and you wouldn't mind having one, they're very sculptural. They're actually quite yeah, and beautiful. they're pretty big. Well, they're the size of a little bit bigger than a leg. Yeah, I would say honestly. they're like 40-something inches long. Well, I wrote it down. I can tell you how long they are. They're 42 and a half inches yeah. long. Yeah. Actually, I'll tell you all of it. So they're 42 and a half inches long. They're about... Just under six inches wide at the heel. They're eight inches at the thigh, and they weigh about one and a half pounds. That's so crazy. It is crazy. They were all made using either mahogany, birch, and fir plywood. Yeah. So the thing that I think is really kind of amazing about this is that, let's say that you, Andrew Hawkins, wants to go buy one of these leg splints, mm -hmm. okay? I kind of do. <laughs> I know. I do, too. I actually told my wife, I go, I wouldn't mind having one of these things. She goes, well, Why? And I goes, they're cool. They're beautiful. She goes, what would you do with it? I go, you know, you like hanging on the wall. She goes, why would somebody put a leg splint on the wall? And I'm thinking, okay, she just needs to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but when I was doing the research, you can buy one of these leg splints for around $800 a lot of times. It has to do with the quality of it. But here's what's crazy. There's a lot of them. The real valuable ones are still in the paper packaging, mm -hmm. which means you don't even get to see the splint. You just have to go it's in there i guess you take an x-ray to know that it's in there or you and just open it but if you open it it loses value it loses its value and i, I know, go well i wouldn't want it because i see it as an investment i'd want it because you know i think it's a beautiful piece of design yeah so i have zero interest in buying one that's still in the original wrapper because it's not the wrapper that i admire it's the actual splint so i would want to look at the splint yeah when we started talking about this, I was looking at buying one. The ones in the package are like 1800 bucks or so, 1500 bucks. And it's funny because apparently they sold them off through Eames's official website for a while. And it's funny that they were like, we haven't opened these, and so we don't know what condition they're in even. So if you buy one, you buy it at your own risk. It could be broken. And you're like, uh, okay. Man. That would be the reason not to buy one in a package because if it was broke or cracked or split, I'd be kind of mad. It wouldn't you also, I mean, pardon me, goes, uh, I'd like to decide for myself whether I got a mahogany one or a birch one or a fir one. Yeah, that's true. I think that'd me be too. part of the thing that 
If I'm going to get something specific, I might as well be picky about it. Right. I'm going to get me a mahogany one. Okay, so here's part of the reason why, for the people who don't necessarily know what this thing is, there'll be pictures on the website so you can see it. But here's some of the things I wrote down about why this was such an amazing thing for them to come up with and use this construction technology that didn't exist before, okay? This new ply-form material, which ply-form is what they call when you build it up with a veneer glue, veneer glue, veneer glue, so you can squish it and bend it. Yes. The splint, since it's made out of wood, you don't have to remove it to take an x-ray. Okay, that by itself is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's cool. It can be used with or without shoes and with or without clothing, which is important because a lot of times these things were put on splints in the guys that were injured in the field. Yeah. They're not taking off their pants or remove. If they have a broken leg or something bad has happened, they just want to protect it, stabilize it, and get those guys back to where they need to be so doctors can try to solve their problem. Yeah. So it has a particular top coat layer that's supposed to make it easy for cleaning, and you should be able to reuse it. And it has a shape section especially made for the foot. So when you see it, the bottom of the splint doesn't hold the bottom of the foot. It kind of suspends it. So when it gets tied off, your foot isn't sitting on the bottom of the splint. It's not designed to work that way. It's designed to allow your foot to kind of gyroscope within the shell, as it were. Yeah, a little bit of movement-ish. I mean, There's very particular slots that are put within the splint as part of the fabrication process, right, to relieve some of the stresses as it was bending it. But what they knew what would be used is when you put this thing on someone's legs, those little slots could be used to tie the bandages off to stabilize the leg. So it wasn't just a device that held the leg still. They actually used it to tie the leg off. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how they used that. They knew they had to have them for the ply process to get it to bend but that they put them in places that also would be helpful in the actual use of it. Well, they stack, so they fit into each other, which makes it easy to carry like up to 12 at a time. This new platform technology is strong enough to where the device won't suffer from shock or impact damage. And because it's bent in the X, Y, and Z axis, it doesn't warp. It can be used on the left or right leg. It's not leg specific. And I think... When you see it, if you're not familiar with it, it's so clever. It just embodies everything about how design can be so helpful and beneficial in ways that nobody ever thinks about. So for that reason, that's why I put it on my object of design list. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it really does show, like, if you take the time to design everyday things in a critical and thoughtful way, how much better they could be. You know, it doesn't always happen that often. Well, I think nowadays things aren't meant to last in the same way yeah, that these things were designed for sure. to last and to be reused. And I mean, you think yeah. about it, they were made at a time, it's been 50, 60, 70, 75 years. Yeah. And they're all still, unless somebody broke it, they still look great. The funny thing is, is like, if you've never heard of this before and you can't imagine what we're talking about, it's, it's a really cool looking thing. It's more like a piece of sculpture almost. All the more reason to go to the website and look at the photos. Yeah, I know. I think if you put it on your wall... Nobody would really go, oh, what's with the leg splint? They'd go, what is this cool-looking piece of art? <laughs> it's a leg splint from World War II. Yeah, and if you have 20 minutes, I'll tell you all about it. Exactly, right? Yeah. That segues into one of my objects, which I'm sure if you've listened or you know much about me, it's going to be pretty obvious. So it's the Eames lounge chair. Nice segue. Yeah, right, straight into it. Which, again, use that platform technology that they, when they finally got it figured out, 
The interesting thing that I can say about the original chair that you spoke about, Charles and Arrow Saarinen designed that won that competition. It actually was plywood, but then they still had to put an upholstered fabric over it because mm-hmm. they couldn't get the plywood to not crack. So even at that point, they were having trouble with the technology because their goal was to actually have a chair that didn't require any upholstery. Right. Because they thought upholstery is not modern. They're like, upholstery is Victorian era. Nobody wants to upholstered furniture, which is kind of funny. <laughs> well, you know, that thought, which I know is not what we're talking about, but that's reflected in their their LCW chair and their DCW chair. Yeah, that, exactly. And actually, I'm sitting in an all-wood Eames chair at the moment recording this podcast. Nice. No upholstery. Doing all this research makes you want to get some. To me, the reason that this one is a little bit interesting is the original intent of Charles and Ray and the platform objects was really about making design for the masses. Their goal was to have, again, like the competition, an affordable, very well-designed chair. And part of this, in this time in the 50s, it was about this sort of modernization. Because after the war, it was all about this new civilization that we were creating here in America. And Sure. And so this chair was actually a deviation from that thought and process of trying to make things for the masses. Now, that's not why I like it, but I think it's interesting. Because they wanted to... <laughs> I, I like this chair because it's an elitist chair. No, that's no. Right. The, uh... <laughs> but the idea was that they wanted to make a luxury item. And so they set out to make this chair. And the funny thing to me about it is that Charles described it as he wanted it to have the warm and receptive look of a well-used first baseman's mitt. Yes. Which is funny because when you look at it, you can kind of see it. They set out to make this luxury item using the technology they had, but then it's kind of funny because they went back to upholstery. But it's not quite upholstered because all the cushions can come off, and you could sit in it, I guess, without the cushions, although it wouldn't be that great. But they wanted to reinterpret the traditional English chair in a modern new way. They didn't want to have the stuffiness of that chair. I wonder if, you know, because I have one of them. Mm -hmm. I know I've told the story about how I got it, which angers everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. So I won't tell how I got the chair for free Mm -hmm. from a friend of mine who said it wasn't comfortable. Yeah. (laughs) So in doing research on the leg splint, one of the things that I learned was they had this overarching goal from the very beginning to try to build a chair out of one piece of wood. Mm -hmm. And they could never do it. They never did it, actually. Yeah. That's why when you look... And I always think of this when I think about that lounger, because it's kind of made up of three segments of wood. Yes. Like the chair I'm sitting right now, it has a back and it has a seat. Mm -hmm. If you look again at the LCW or the DCW chairs, they came up with a wood piece to kind of bridge those two other pieces together. Yes. But they never could make it happen with just one piece of wood. So I'm not surprised that other than those few pieces that I think I would have anticipated that there would have been more upholstered products in their furniture line just as a practical aspect of the the creation. I think they kind of evolved into that because a lot of their other pieces, the sofa and some other things, they have upholster on them. But I think the difference maybe to them was that it wasn't fully upholstered. It wasn't completely covered in some sort of fabric. And the other thing about this chair that was unique was it came back to the original plywood chair and used those shock mounts. In a different way. Right, yeah. Which was an interesting technology that they developed for that first chair. The other thing I think that was really interesting about it is they debuted this chair on television in 1956 on this NBC show called The Home Show. Really? Yeah, that's where they actually debuted this chair. 
I mean, at that time, yeah. they had already had their partnership with Herman Miller. Some of the stuff I read said they made this chair for Herman Miller in a way, but I still think it was their idea, but maybe they had a little bit of input, like push to make something a little more loungy from Herman Miller. It's interesting. I d- didn't know that. Yeah, it was interesting. It was on TV. I watched that interview, and the funny thing is, it's so dated. The host of the show is a woman, and Charles and Ray Eames are on there, but Charles comes out first and starts talking about stuff, and then she says something about, like, well, and we all know that there's no such thing as a successful man without a successful woman behind him. Let's meet that woman, and she comes out, and she's talking a little bit, but it's still sort of very meek. The host is still infers that Charles is the only person that's doing stuff because the time period was like housewives, and it was really strange. Well, you know, when I was doing my notes for the Plyform leg splint, yeah, you would think that Ray was just a fawning schoolgirl and that Charles did everything by himself. Yeah. It doesn't really mention her much, and so I purposely said, I'm going to add her name to everything because I'm not entirely convinced that we don't actually know who did, well, at least I don't. I mean, I look, I tried to find it. But I thought this seems more reflective of how journalism was carried out in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. If you do a little bit of more investigating and read into stuff, it was that in one of the documentaries that I put on my list a couple of weeks ago about what to watch, there's one about Charles and Ray Eames. And it was really interesting to hear the people that work there talk about the way that they were and that like Charles didn't like color. He didn't have anything to do with color and that Ray picked out everything that had to do with color. Really, it was it was almost that she was maybe kind of more in charge of stuff than he was. But at the time, nobody was going to portray it that way. The other thing that's interesting is Herman Miller has had the patent on producing that chair since the original 1956. And it really didn't change up until the 1990s when they stopped using the Brazilian rosewood because of its unsustainable nature. And then mm-hmm. they started molding it in other materials. Yeah. And the closest now is the the palisander rosewood. That's the closest that looks like the original. And that that's one of the ways to tell the difference between fakes and originals or newer production items and originals. Later, Vitra, in cooperation with the German furniture company Fritz Becker, began producing the chair on the European market. It was licensed in the UK for only 10 years to Hill International from 1957. Immediately following the release, other furniture companies began to copy the chair's design. Some made direct copies and others were merely influenced by the design. We had a couple of, uh, I won't call them knockoffs, because I don't think my parents ever tried to present they were something other than what they were. My mom and dad had pretty reasonable facsimiles of the Eames chair in our house. Oh yeah, interesting. Yeah. When I was reading about the fakes and stuff, because there's tons and tons of copies or whatever you want to call it, that some of them are garbagey, really cheap, but some of them are actually really close to a quality level of the product. So they're still pretty expensive, but they're not official licensed chairs. Right. And the other thing that really is interesting about the process of the chair is that the construction of it changed a little bit over the history. And so you have to really know what you're looking for to find the difference between a fake and an original. Because they change the number of fasteners and the number of bolts and the way that the seat cushions connected throughout the production, it gets to be difficult to determine what is exactly a real manufactured product from Eames and from Herman Miller than a fake knockoff. Which is a conversation for a different show because there's a conversation there. What do you mean? Well, I think that's something we can get into. It's like, you know, 
buying an original versus buying a copy. You know, can you not appreciate the design if it's not? Oh, if it's not the licensed manufacturer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The only thing I'm happy about is now I think they make it in a taller height. Yes. Like officially it's a taller chair. I have the shorter one and I'm not going to lie. I rarely sit in it because it's not that comfortable to get in and out of. I mean, it's like awkward. Yeah, I would agree. Maybe it wasn't made for people who are six one and above. <laughs> Maybe so. I, I never saw actually how tall Charles was, so I don't really know. For all we know, he was like five seven. Well, or considering something. that his leg splint was only forty two and a half inches long, and it was based on his leg. Yeah. And when you see the photo, there's like four inches between the bottom of the foot and the bottom of the splint. So I'm not sure he was particularly tall. The other thing that's interesting is it's a, it's actually called the six seventy chair. That's the official name of that chair because of that's the ply manufacturer piece, P670 and 671. Because the other thing I didn't realize until I was looking at it, and I, you know, I don't feel like I geek out on this chair, but that the ottoman and one of the back plates are exactly the same. Chair has four pieces. Two of them are exactly the same piece yeah. of molded ply. I didn't know that. Which is interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I did it. All right, should we go on to the next one? So, yeah, let's move on. What's next in our objects of design? Those were kind of similarly focused. So the next item on my object of design list is a building, and it is the Clifford Still Museum, which was completed, they broke ground in 2009, completed in 2011, designed by Allied Works, and it's located in Denver, Colorado. The first time I saw this building, actually, you were there, but you weren't there with me at the building, but it was at the 2013 AIA National Convention, and it's located immediately next door to the Liebskin Design Denver Art Museum, which goes by the Frederick C. Hamilton Building. You know, it's funny. I looked this up because I was thinking about putting an address in. And the Denver Art Museum, which is what I call it, is actually not called the Denver Art Museum. It's called the Frederick C. Hamilton Building. I did not know that either. I didn't know that. It, well, I, that guy probably paid a lot to get his name on the building. Yeah, I'm guessing. You must have. So I put this building on my list because not only is it a beautifully designed building that uses some of my most favorite architectural materials, like Sightcast architectural concrete, when they did it, they allowed the concrete to ooze out from between the formwork, running vertically in these like very slender vertical expressions, and then they just snapped them off. Like you just grab it with your hand and you just snap a piece off. Mm-hmm. So it's got this beautiful kind of ebb and flow to the edge and the light hits it differently. It's very irregular and as a result, it seems to give it a little bit of movement to it, which I love. But then it also has this amazing, I believe it's Douglas fir, wood slats that they've used throughout the building and on the exterior. So you get the, I actually happen to think that cast concrete's very warm in its color. And when you express the board form, I think it makes it feel even more warm and not what you would think concrete would feel like, which is kind of a cold material. Not the brutalist kind of feel. But the Doug fur brings a lot of warmth to it. But the other thing is, is they have this like amazing, I mean, like it is amazing, cast perforated concrete ceiling at the second level, which, you know, kind of normalizes and addresses the natural sunlight because you can get some pretty harsh light in Denver due to the the elevation Mm -hmm. that it's at. What's neat is there's nine galleries on the second level that you have visual access to the perforated ceiling throughout all of them. 
So it's a beautiful building, but that's actually not why I put it on my list. So to get to the why I put it on my list, I need to tell you a little bit about Clifford Still. I don't know if you know anything about him. Uh, I mean, a little bit, and I'll say no, even though we've talked about it. So let me tell you a little bit about Clifford Still. Interesting guy. There's some story here, and the truth is, this is the other one I was saying that I didn't really know much about this stuff, but someone told me about it. Mm -hmm. So my last partner and boss, kind of, Michael Malone, you know him, so maybe you wouldn't be shocked to know this. Michael's many things, but boring is not one of them. He reads vociferously, and he can talk at length on just about anything. It just so happens that artwork and painting is one of his like real passions. And yeah, so yeah. going to museums with him is like a real treat because he doesn't have to read the plaques next to the painting, kind of say why this was important or what it meant. And so when I told him how much I really liked the Clifford Still Museum, he's the one that told me all this stuff about him. And I was like, what? That's crazy. And so I knew a lot of this story already before I went to do research for today's episode. Mm-hmm. But it's part of what makes this so interesting. So Clifford Still was born, just update it, in 1904 in North Dakota, and he spent his childhood in Spokane, Washington, and Bow Island in southern Alberta, Canada. He is considered one of the leading figures in what is called abstract expressionism, which was a post-World War II art movement that developed in New York in the 40s. And if you don't know Clifford Still, you probably know some other people who fall into the abstract expressionism category. So like Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock are kind of the two more household names that fall into that kind of swath of artists. Uh-huh. But abstract expressionism is marked by, obviously, abstract forms, but really expressive brushwork at a monumental scale. And sometimes some of these guys, like, for example, Jackson Pollock was one of the guys they called the action painters. When they started to paint something, they didn't have something in mind. The act of painting is part of what's reflected in the work they did, you know, Jackson Pollock would actually throw a paint on a canvas that was on the floor. And so big canvases, big canvases. And so for all these guys, their art took on universal themes that really transcends this particular kind of definition, but they're supposed to reflect creation and life and the struggle between life and death, the human condition, basically, Mm -hmm. which took on considerable relevance during and after World War II which is kind of important because that's the period when abstract expressionism took its place and grew to the, well, to the popularity that it ended up receiving is what brought these guys fame during this period. So I'm not sure it's important to this particular story, but I do want to point out that I really like the work of Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. And so it would stand to reason that I'm also a fan of Clifford Still, but until I went to the museum, I'd never heard of the guy. I mean, I was not familiar with his work, not in the way that I was with some of the other folks. Yeah. So walking was a really interesting experience for me. Here's the continuation of that story. So it's 1943 and still had his very first solo show at San Francisco Museum of Art. Four years later, in 1947, he had another solo show at the California Palace of the Legion of Honor. Okay. And you're like, okay, what does that matter? Yeah. All right. So first solo show, 43, four years later, this one, California. At that point, he declined all public exhibitions. He stopped showing his work everywhere. After that one? After that one. 
in 47. So four years. Yeah. Yeah. After four years, he stopped showing it. His first, mm-hmm. four years later, his last. And he was a teacher. He taught a bunch of places. He moved around a lot. In 1950, he moved to New York City where he lived for almost that entire decade. And that is the time period which most people believe to be the absolute height of the abstract expressionism movement. But it was during that time when Clifford Still became really critical of the art world and he severed all ties with commercial galleries. So not only was he not having shows, you couldn't buy his work. He's just like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't like people telling me what I'm going to do. So there's a whole story. And Michael told me a little bit of it, but I haven't found the research on it. So I don't want to guess and have it recorded and someone tell me, oh, you blew that. But I know. And if you go to the museum, there's letters that show between him and his agent, basically him firing this person and saying, I'm not doing this anymore. At his peak, no more shows, no more selling his work, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And so in 1959, after going a decade without presenting any work, He finally had a comprehensive retrospective show that took place at the Albright Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo, New York. So, 47, that's the last show he did. 1959, finally gets a comprehensive, top of his game right now for this whole decade. Everyone's like, this is the guy. He is the guy. Out of all of them, they all said, he's the one. So, in 1961, he moved to a 22-acre farm. And we haven't even gotten to the best part of the story yet. 1961, he moved to a 22-acre farm near Westminster, Maryland, further removing himself from the art world. He used a barn on the property as a studio to paint. And in 1966, still in his, at that time, his second wife, he divorced his first wife, I think, in the 40s. They purchased a big house in Windsor, Maryland, about eight miles from the farm. And that's where he lived until he died at age 75 in 1980. Hmm, okay. So, died in 1980 at 75. In 1975, so five years before he died, he was 70 years old. That's when he finally got a permanent installation of just a portion of his work at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. 1979, the year before he died, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art organized the largest survey of his work to date and the largest presentation afforded by this institution, to the work of a living artist, right? So does that make sense? Yeah. So what they did, they put on like the biggest show to someone who was still alive that they'd ever done. So I'm just trying to set the table for everybody thought this guy was a big deal. Yeah, he was really, really important. Yeah, top of his game, but didn't sell any work, didn't have any shows for like the bulk of his producing years. Mm -hmm. As far as you know, but then there was that barn on the property where he would paint. Well, guess what? It was full of paintings. He would just paint and stick it in the barn. So here's what's crazy. In 1978, two years before he died, Still wrote a will that left a portion of his work along with his archives to his wife Patricia and stated, I give and bequeath all the remaining works of art executed by me in my collection to an American city that will agree to build or assign and maintain permanent quarters exclusively for these works of art and assure their physical survival with the explicit requirement that none of these works of art will be sold, given, or exchanged, but are to be retained in the place described above exclusively assigned to them in perpetuity for exhibition and study. He's like, hey, 
you want my stuff, you want my paintings, which clearly everybody did, you had to build him a museum, which is what they did in Denver, which is shocking. But here's the thing. That's crazy. Okay, so here's this. I left this part out. When Still died in 1980, his collection was approximately 2,400 pieces of work. 2,400 of total work. So fast forward 25 years. In August of 2004, the city of Denver announced that it had been chosen by Patricia Still over 20 other competing cities. So there were, I'd say there's at least 21, right? At least 21 cities that wanted to build a Clifford Still Museum for the sole purpose of getting his collection to present it. That's crazy. Yeah. It was roughly 825 paintings on canvas and 1,575 works on paper, you know, like drawings and sketches and stuff like that. Yeah. Probably most of those things had been sitting in the Maryland estate barn. For that whole time? For this time. So that's crazy. All that's, I go, that's amazing. There's so many amazing things to that story. It just blows my mind. So let's address the elephant that's in the room, since we're talking about a lot of paintings from someone who was the master of abstract expressionist movement. In 2011, which was when the Clifford Still Museum opened, there were four paintings that were able to be sold in order to support the endowment and collection-related expenses associated with the Clifford Still Museum. So the names don't really have names, right? Because they're not like, you know, yellow field of wheat, right? He didn't paint those kind of paintings. They were Mm-hmm. Very abstract. So they have names like PH351 or 1947Y number two. They have these really weird names. So yeah. in this, this one auction, they sold four pieces of his work for $114 million. Four, <laughs> four pieces. Four. Nice. Yeah. And he had 825 paintings and four of them were worth $114 million. That's so crazy. Isn't that just mind-boggling? That is nuts. So the backstory is a big part of the reason why this building's on my list now. It isn't all that common. This is why I decided to put it in concert with that particular story. It's really not all that common that a museum is designed specifically to present the life work of a singular artist. Yeah, of one person. They do exist, right? Picasso's got a couple of them. Mm -hmm. But it's really just not that common. But here's what makes this so interesting, why this particular project's so great and why everyone I think ought to go see it, is they knew, Allied Works, they knew all the pieces that would go on display because the museum was designed so that you would experience Still's work chronologically. So the design was able to take in consideration the size of these pieces that they knew would be on display in the walls. And you got to remember, part of what defines the abstract expressionist is that the paintings are monumental in size. And so knowing which painting would go where and how big the wall needed to be to properly display the work was clearly a consideration to this whole process. Yeah, really important in it. And I want to say that one of the paintings that they have is 12 feet tall and 16 feet long. That's a big painting. That is a big piece. (laughs) It's a beautiful building. The light's amazing. Clifford Still's work is unbelievable. It's all chronological. They've got this unbelievable archive system down in the the lower level. When you go through, you walk in the front door. Again, it's amazing. And you kind of start going upstairs so you can go through. It's like 10,000 square feet worth of gallery where you can go through the collection that they currently have on display. It's kind of chronological. But as you wrap up, you kind of go down the bottom and you can see like his sketchbooks and his paints. and Because they have everything. 
They have mm-hmm. he kept everything. And you can see all the racks where the paintings that aren't on display but that they own are being housed. So that's my second amazing object of design story. The thing about that to me that's almost the most amazing, though, is that he put it in his will that that's how his stuff had to be handled. Yeah. That he had this forethought in mind. Like, I guess, you know, whenever it happened, he must have just got so aggravated with the art world. Man, this is in my will. My stuff's not getting split up. One person's going to have to do it, and it's going to stay in one place. Yeah, and you can't ever sell it. Yeah, that's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. So knowing that story when you walk that building, it just adds to it, for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. That's part of the narrative that the story has that supports you know, the design, and the design's reflected in that narrative. and It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting story. Makes me want to go back to Denver. Yeah. I was doing a lot of this research over the last couple of days, and I was like, man, I need to get back and go see it again. I know. I know. We should plan a trip. <laughs> okay, Andrew, so now that I've told you about my Clifford Still Museum object of design, what's next on your list? We're going to totally switch gears here, and that's kind of a pun. I like switching gears. Let's do it. <laughs> so next up on my list came from this childhood fascination of mine of something that I thought was always really unique. And I've always wanted to have something like this. I don't know that I ever will. But it is the design of gullwing doors on a car. Mmm, those are cool. Yeah, super cool. I mean, I remember being a kid in the 80s. Of course, the DeLorean from Back to the Future had those. Sure. Right? That's what those kinds are. But also at that time, like Lamborghinis and all those things were so cool when they had doors like that. But as I did some research, they're not all Gullwing, but Gullwing doors, really, really cool. So it's interesting, the history that I found out about this as well. And, you know, most recently, I guess they've made some appearances. I mean, they're still getting used, but just not as much. I think probably the most recent version that's been applied to a, I don't want to say a a common car. Most of them are luxury cars, but the Tesla Model X had them on the back of their SUV. Yeah. And that car is like what, like over a hundred grand. Yeah, I know. Well, the other cars that still have them are like Lamborghinis and Ferraris and McLarens, really, really expensive cars. But it's interesting. The most famous cars with gold ring doors are the first car, well, the first production car that had gullwing doors, which was the 1954 Mercedes-Benz 300 SL, which is actually called the Mercedes Gullwing. Yes, I know that car. Yeah, that's a sweet car. And then the DeLorean from Back to the Future. Those are probably the most common known of those cars. And if you're even close to our age, everybody's familiar with the DeLorean. Oh, yeah. For a while, I wanted to own one. Again, that's sort of when my fascination with this kind of car developed us actually through that uh, back to the future the interesting thing about it that i learned is that a gullwing is a certain kind of door there are other doors that function differently but they're like butterfly doors or they're scissor doors it's all a matter of where they attach the car and how they operate right but gullwing doors are attached at the roof and open upward some luxury cars have doors that are still attached at the normal door location on the front fender side but they open differently they don't swing out they might lift up and do other things but those are not quote unquote yeah those are the scissor doors yeah anyway when i started doing some research on this i thought that it was really interesting because i kind of like cars and i think this is a unique design element that doesn't often get repeated 
and we'll get into maybe why that is a little bit later on. So I went to figure out about how those doors came about. Typically, the Mercedes-Benz, that 1954 300 SL Gullwing, is considered to be the original car with Gullwing doors, and that Mercedes is the quote-unquote inventor of that door. As I looked into it, I found out that's not quite true. There's another car that sometimes gets credit. It's the 1939 Bugatti. The funny thing about it is it couldn't be any more different from the Mercedes than, I don't know, it might as well be a truck. The Bugatti car was a long, big, huge sedan. Really long front and kind of a smaller back that you actually sat in. It was a really stretched out car. And it had these doors that were, they called them butterfly doors that Bugatti invented. That car sometimes gets credited, and Jean Bugatti gets credited with the origination of the Gullwing. But that door's a little bit different in its mechanisms and such. If we go back a little bit further than 1939 to 1934 Mm. in Germany. Oh, no. Yeah. In Germany, there's a guy named Hans Trippel who was a, at the time, a mediocre professional race car driver in Germany. It turns out about that time he decided he didn't want to race cars anymore. And what he wanted to do was make a car that would float. Mm-hmm. An aqua car guy. Yeah, that's a reasonable kind of A to B decision-making right. process. That's a straight path. Well, I think it was somehow like he just, he sucked at driving cars and he still wanted to do something with cars. And so he put a propeller on this little race car that he had and it's float and he's, kind of started to make it work. So in 34, he sort of had this idea and started tinkering with it. And in late 34 and 35, he it went around Germany doing demonstrations of his floating car. And it was said that people went because they were interested, maybe because they thought he might sink, but also that it was cool that it might be a floating car. Like there was this, is he going to die or not kind of thing. And so he was doing that around Germany. And then at some point in December of 1935, after he'd been doing this for about a year or so, he got to present his floating car to Hitler. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yes, Hitler, that Hitler. So he presents the car to Hitler. And... Wait, 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 hold on. Like, presents yeah. it like, look, here's the car, or like, here, it's a gift to you, my No, no, Fuhrer. no, like, does a demonstration of the okay. car for Hitler. Not, it's a gift, Fuhrer, but gets a demonstration in front of Hitler. And Hitler is impressed... And decides that this guy is now going to start making these for the army. Because mm. this is in mid-30s Hitler and he's starting to do his stuff. And so he starts to build these amphibious vehicles for the German army. And the first full model went into production in 1938. So he tinkered with the design some and did some other things. And so in 38, when it went into production, or one of the first models, actually made the trip from Naples, Italy, to the island of Capri in the Gulf of Naples, which is like 24, 25 miles in the water. Which, if you're going to have a boat, it doesn't seem like that should be hard to do. <laughs> no, but it's a boat and a car. I thought that was kind of interesting. But one thing, did it have gullwing doors on it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. Okay. All right. So... In 1940, Hitler moved him to a manufacturing plant that had recently been vacated by Bugatti. And he worked there and made about 800 units of these amphibious cars for the German army. And then later, when the war was over, he was imprisoned for being a war criminal for about three years. For designing aqua 
aquacars. Okay, for designing aquacars for the German, the German army. So when he got out of prison, he still was like really hip on this idea of this amphibious car. The guy was obsessed with water cars for some reason. He's just passionate about aquacars. A car that floats. Not one that flies, but one that floats because, yeah, we need that. So he keeps trying to do this and, and ends up actually maybe a year later, runs into this buddy from prison, <laughs> always the prison connections, and this guy and his daughter. And it turns out that this guy had recently inherited these manufacturing plants from his family, like three different plants. So he seduces this guy's daughter, marries her, and then convinces the guy that they should start making these cars. But he wants to make it a smaller car that can be sold to the general public, not the larger version for the army, but like a little micro car. And so at this time, which is in 47, I believe, is when he builds this prototype and it has a gullwing door on it. And the reason that it has a gullwing door is because it improved the water tightness of the car. Because the door opening flipped up, but also the bottom of the opening where the door opened was actually above the water line when it was in the water. So the car was supposed to be buoyant enough that this door opened above the water line. And that's why it opened the way it did. Which, you know, makes sense. It does make sense. The funny thing was, is he only put it on one side of the car. I don't know why that was. And nobody really does. So this is when he was in Germany. So he went and showed this little car off at an auto show in Hanover in 1950. And at that show, there was a lot of people there. And some of those people were Mercedes. One of the funny things that I read about this car is there was a German translation of the event, and it says, the rough translation is, the audience huddled around the little car and could hardly digest so much unusualness. Because it's a funny-looking little car with this goal, one going door on one side, and it's supposed to float. It looks like the strangest little thing ever. It looks like one of those cars that would have three wheels under it. I mean, it's like that. It's like really small. Oh, I got it. I got it. I think I know the vehicle you're talking about. At that point, he caught the eye of Mercedes. And sometime thereafter, in the next year or two, they bought the patent for the Gullwing door from him. Wow. Like right after the war, right? And at that time, they were trying to recover from the war and... They were getting back into racing, and they built the 300 race car first in 1952. They built it in such a way that they were trying to make it lighter because they were using old engines from a 300 car that was an old Mercedes 300 that was a big giant sedan that had this giant engine in it. And there was some interesting history there about it. But what ended up happening is that they wanted to, or they got talked into mass producing the 300 as a customer car, a retail car, not a race car. The person that convinced him to do that was this race car aficionado that lived in the United States and wanted to import these cars from Germany into the U.S. And so he finally convinced them to do it, and they premiered it at an auto show in 1954, and it sold like hotcakes in the U.S. So there was only 1,400 of those 1954 300 SL Gullwings ever made. 1,100 of them were sold in the U.S. Only 300 were sold in Germany in the home country. And so that car became the iconic Gullwing car, and it was based off this guy Hans Trippel, his design for this aqua car. He gets zero credit for it, I think. I had to do a lot of searching to find this story. But he continued with his aqua car fascination for forever. 
until the day he died. And in actuality, at some point, he ended up becoming fairly successful and helped create the Ampha car, which is the amphibious car, and a couple of other water-bound automobiles that were used by the Army and oil companies and things like that. So he never did give up on his water car idea, but he could be way more famous and rich if it had stuck with his gullwing door and not sold the patent. I think those are really cool doors, but the idea about why there are not more of them and, you know, they don't happen that often because they're actually more efficient getting in and out of the car because they take less space. Although some people don't think so. You can get online and find videos of people with gullwing car doors and you can be with 10 inches of another car and the door will still open all the way. So if you were like in urban traffic, and that was one of the selling points originally was that it was more roomy to get in and out of your car. But the bigger issues with it that end up keeping it from being a more used door are water intrusion, which seems to be a little bit of a problem with those kinds of doors. But the biggest one really, and in the U.S. for sure, is the safety of that car when it rolls over. Because if it rolls over and it's laying on its roof, the doors won't open. So there's some safety issues. The DeLorean actually solved that. Kicked the window out. By having the, the windshield be kickable. They engineered it so that you could kick it out. The new Mercedes that they made when they did an anniversary edition of the SL actually has explosive devices in the hinges that pop the hinges off if it rolls over, <laughs> which is kind of wild. Where there's a will, there's a way, right? If you want it bad enough, you want to spend the money for it. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. That was one of the reasons that's been stated that why they're only in the back doors of the Teslas so the front doors can still be used for emergency. Right. But I think that's really interesting. It's just a really cool design. And then the story was really interesting because it's it's got little Nazis in it. It's got some Bugatti in it. And it's got an aqua car all rolled into one. Yeah, you can't go wrong with an aqua car. I didn't know any of that stuff when I started looking at it. I just thought it was a really cool design. To me, it's really about the uniqueness of that and how it, it seems to project a certain air, a certain aura. If you've got a car that has doors like that, it's one of those things that design can do that. It only happens on luxury cars and really expensive things. I guess maybe it ties in with my Eames chairs being not for the masses. I don't know. Apparently, I'm coming off really aristocratic here. <laughs> with your selections? Oh, yeah, yeah, in my likes of objects of design. But from a kid, I always wanted a car like that. And it's interesting to see now. There's still a lot of those original gold wings left, but they are crazy expensive. A beat up one is like $500,000. It's too rich for my blood. So I'll never own one. <laughs> I'll yeah. be lucky if I get to see one. Okay, from gold wing doors, we're going to head back to chairs. Okay. And you know what? I got to tell you that had I walked into this thinking that... I only put one chair on my list, but the fact that you had a chair on your list and I had a chair on my list, I think it's kind of crazy. Yeah, um, and I had another chair. I know, and we did have a pre-production call and we're like, too many chairs. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's got to be something better than chairs. <laughs> I know. Okay, so this story, it's not super long, but I do think it's interesting, so I think we can kind of squeeze one more in. Okay, let's do it. This is the BFK chair, and if I were to ask you... How many people do you think would actually know what chair I'm talking about if I call it the BFK chair? How many would know? Yeah, probably not many. And if I said, okay, well, if I refer to it as the butterfly chair, how many people do you think would know what I'm talking about? More. Yes. Not very (laughs) many to more. (laughs) Probably still, maybe not many. If you would have said BFK chair, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. 
Yeah. Well, there's actually a lot of names for the BFK chair. So it also is known as the Noel Hardoy chair, butterfly chair, safari chair, sling chair, or wing chair. Oh. The reason why it's actually officially the BFK chair is because it was designed in 1938, Buenos Aires, by Antonio Bonet, Juan Kirchen, and Jorge Ferrari Hardoy. Three architects who were working in La Corbusier's studio. Mm. And so the original name, BFK Chair, credits those three people because that's the initials of their last name. Oh, okay. And this chair was actually designed for an apartment building project they were working on. I couldn't find which one other than it's in Buenos Aires. That's all I know. Mm. So here's where this particular thing gets a little interesting, or at least a, a little bit amusing. So in 1940, a picture of the chair appeared in a U.S. magazine titled Retailing Daily, where the chair, it was just pictured, and it was described as a, quote, newly invented Argentine easy chair for siesta sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. I like that. Siesta sitting. Siesta sitting. Just a few months after that, it was awarded the second place prize by the National Cultural Commission at the third Salon de Artistas Decoradas Exhibition in Argentina. Great, right? It won a prize. Most of these chairs, obviously they're iconic. People saw them, thought they were great, and they get rewarded. There's nothing shocking about that. Yeah. But apparently between these two events being in the magazine, the Retailing Daily, and then winning this prize at this competition... It drew the attention of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So they're making another appearance here. They're showing Mm -hmm. my first story as well. This is what's crazy. So remember, the three guys that designed it were architects, and they worked for Le Corbusier. Mm -hmm. Here you go. Next connection. At the request of Edgar Kaufman Jr. of Falling Water fame, who is also the director of MoMA's Industrial Design Department, Jorge Hardoy, sent three chairs to New York. Obviously, one went to Falling Water, which was Kaufman Jr.'s home in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Another one went to MoMA. And the third is believed to have been delivered to Clifford Pasco of Artec Pasco, Inc. in New York, which, in case you didn't know, Artec Pasco was a furniture store that was opened by Alvar and Aino Alto, along with furniture designer Clifford Pascoe. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So we got we got La Corbusier. We got a Frank Lloyd Wright house owner guy. We've got Oliver Alto and his wife. And then we got Clifford Pascoe, who was actually a pretty well-known furniture designer in his own right. And I don't know how many people know that Artec was actually Oliver Alto's, the retail branch of a furniture line that he, he did. Yeah. Interesting. So Artec Pascoe produced a chair from 1941 to 1948 sending all the royalties back to Argentina and the BFK group. In 1947, Noel, shows up everywhere, acquired the U.S. production rights of the Hardoy chair, which brought them international notice and commercial success. Mm-hmm. Noel was a big deal. Yeah. All of a sudden, a rash of inferior copies started showing up, and it prompted Noel to take legal action in 1950. So that's just three years after they got the production rights. Mm-hmm. They lost their claim of copyright infringement, so Noel dropped the chair in 1951. So, <laughs> no more. Interesting. And it was estimated 
that more than 5 million copies of the chair were produced by untold jillions of manufacturers during the 1950s alone. Oh, wow. In the 50s, man, that's crazy. Just in the 1950s. So I actually have two original butterfly chairs that came into my possession because somebody else, once again, decided to throw them away. What? Scoreboard. So I actually did a little dumpster diving to get my butterfly chairs. I didn't have to pay for them either. Yeah, I'm not liking you. Well, you know, I was actually driving home from work and I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine houses away from my house. I saw them and I felt really weird because I'm not a dumpster diver. So I drive my car up. I literally look around like someone's going to jump out and go. Is somebody watching me? Gotcha. And I grabbed these things. I threw them in the back of my car and like took off, right? I'm not even sure I went directly home in case somebody was following me. But here's the thing. Are mine original? I actually wrote a post on this not too long ago because I had to refinish them and I got new covers for them and all that kind of stuff. And people will go, hey, are yours original? Like, I have some. How do I know if mine are original? And I'm going to say from what my research has led me to believe is that mine are original. At least they're 1950s original. I don't know if they're B. Noel original or, yeah, BFK original. I don't know. They were never stamped. But mine are made from one continuous rod of steel. And... The legs, when they touch the ground, it's called Prima Ballerina. They kind of come to a point, Mm -hmm. whereas some of the later copies, the legs came down and kind of flattened out. Flattened out a little bit. Yeah. You know, and you can actually look at the MoMA site and you can see on their images, it has the flattened legs, but the original ones have a little bit more of the pointed edge to it. But really, the question you need to ask yourself if you have one of these chairs and you're wondering if it's original or not, it does not matter. I was like, yeah. Yeah, it, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. There's a million of them and there's like, you know, whatever. It's one of five million. <laughs> yeah. And that's if you have a 1950s version. Exactly. So I don't think that it matters. I have mine. I like them. And there's actually a company. There's a couple of companies where you can buy new covers for it. Mine are actually kind of this woven PVC, so I can stick them outside and they just don't get destroyed. So you bought new covers? They didn't have covers when I got them. They were just the frames. But I mean, you didn't have them made or something. You just bought them. Yeah, I didn't have to have them made. You know, I really like the chairs. I just think they look great. They've got this iconic look to them. And again, this goes back to, it's such a simple idea. And the execution of the idea is the distillation of a concept to its like basis level. Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard to do that. And clearly it stood the test of time because these things were, you know, again, we're talking 80 years old now. And you, yeah. they're still making knockoffs of these things. So I like mine. I love them. And I actually think that's a pretty cool story. And I think it's crazy. The connection between you get a little Franklin right in there. You get a little Oliver Alto. You get a little La Cabousier, You get a little MoMA. And this is not, it's not like everybody was in Pennsylvania when this happened. I mean, you've got <laughs> yeah. Finland, you've got Argentina, you've got United States. I mean, I think it's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, it's a small connection when the world was a lot bigger. Yeah, right? Okay, so now that people have heard your list as well as my list of objects, yeah. can we identify whether or not there's a winner? Well, but you got one more than I did, so you win. All right, well, we'll, we'll take... No, I'm not going to... I don't want to go over, <laughs> we're way over time, but I did find out some interesting stuff about those Fabergé eggs. Okay, well, we'll have to have Fabergé egg talk one of these times. Maybe so. Okay, we're at the time 
where we need to move on to this episode's hypothetical question. A question so insidious, <laughs> it could only be the result of laying in bed at one o'clock in the morning, wondering what the next hypothetical question should be. <laughs> yeah. Which is literally what happened. And I grabbed my phone and I dictated it to my notes. <laughs> nice. Did you change it on me? No. Oh, okay. No. So here's what it is. And this is, there's, well, we'll just get into it. So here's the question. Would you rather live on a boat that doesn't sail or a camper trailer that doesn't drive? Yeah, there's so many what ifs on this thing. Yeah, I could set one up instantly that might get rid of about 10 questions. Okay. And let's just say that the value of each would be the same. So we're not talking about a yacht versus a broken down on cinder blocks camper trailer. Yeah. But are we talking about a broken down on cinder blocks trailer and an equivalent boat? Or where are we at with the range of what these things are? Well, they're both broken down because the boat won't sail and the camper won't move. So we're not talking about luxury items here. Okay. But they're both big enough to be livable, I'm assuming. Yeah. That answers some questions for me, I guess. Where is the boat? It's in, it's in water. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is it docked in a lake or is it docked on an ocean or does it matter? We can say it's docked in the ocean. Okay. All right. You know, this one's kind of easy for me in a way, I think, until you start jacking with me here in a minute. But I'm going to go with boat. And I'll tell you the reason why, and maybe the reason why I shouldn't, but I'm going to say boat. I've spent some time in RVs, and I'd go camping and stuff like that. The thought of living in one of those for forever is not really pleasing to me. <laughs> Let's just be honest. At least not one in my mind that's broken down. If it was one of those big luxury cruiser ones that is... With a thousand square feet, maybe with so. With pop outs but, and stuff like that. Yeah, all that stuff. But I'm not but assuming that's why that's what I called it a camper and not an MPPV. Yeah, I got you. But I've never been in a boat that was big enough to live in. But I think, I still think I would probably prefer that mainly because of the water aspect, which could be the downfall of it too. But I like being on the water, I like sitting in a boat when it's not actually moving. I like the sort of fluidity and sway. I think I'd sleep really good in the boat versus the camper. Something about being in the water that I think would be a little bit more soothing to me in that situation than it would be stuck a camper. And you have like birds screaming outside your window all the time. Oh, you think like seagulls and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Because I don't know. they're irritating. There's noise in the woods too. Well, your camper's not in the woods. It could be, you know, whatever. Oh, in my driveway on blocks? Technically, it could be next to the ocean. <laughs> True. But then you still got the birds, so it doesn't really matter. Okay. I'm going with boat. You're I'm going, going with, with water. Um, yeah. Okay. That's the wrong answer. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and like we talked about before, it's pretty cool to be able to say, hey, no. I'm back to my boat. <laughs> Yeah, I know. So if this was... Hey, lady, you want to come back to my boat with me? If you're a single gentleman and you're trying to entertain people... If I'm trying to woo someone, it sounds so much better to say, hey, you want to come back to my boat than, hey, you want to come back to my camper? Yeah, right? Because <laughs> you're not going to have much luck with that last one. Nope. Okay, so here's why the boat is the wrong answer. Okay. 
So first off, you've seen boats that are docked, right? So it's not like you're floating in a beautiful body of water surrounded by other beautiful things. You're not. You're surrounded by another boat that... Other boats. So close to you that you could step off your boat and onto their boat directly most times. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. And then as you're in your boat, somebody could just walk up onto your boat while you're sleeping. Okay. That doesn't sound like a bad thing to you? I don't know. Somebody could walk up in my camper. It's no. so different. No way. Camper's locked. It has a door, like a proper door. Okay. I'm assuming my boat has a door. Yeah, but see, your boat's got like a top. If I have a camper, I also get the space around my camper. Right? I can put out lawn chairs. I mean, I could really... Okay. I could really hillbilly it up if I wanted to. All right. I could have a grill outside my camper. Some I guess. Lawn. It depends where you're at. I'm assuming it was in an RV park. Well, even if it's an RV park, they probably gave you the grill. Anyway. So... I don't think... So, I but here's, here's the way. other part. Here's the other part. Because uh, so, I mean... Okay. You got to let me answer my question. Okay. All right. So, the other thing that makes the camper superior to the boat... Other than the fact that, you know, somebody with a hatchet can just help themselves to anything that's on top of your boat. Anything that you have primarily has to be inside your boat. Because you don't get the space around your boat like you get the space around your camper. That's number one. Okay. Number two, I grew up in motorhomes. I hated them. Hated it. And so while it seems like I would want to choose the boat. Like when I grew up, I had to sleep on the kitchen table because there were five of us. Yeah. So my parents slept in the proper bed in the back. My sister slept in the bed that was like above the driver's seat that yep. swung down from the ceiling. And yep. and I was left with the kitchen table that flattened out to be like a, yeah, and you a square bed. It was terrible. Put the cushions on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I hated it, but I've also been on boats and you got to duck a lot. And I'm thinking I'm not that small and you're even bigger than I am. And as small as campers can feel at times, I think boats will feel even smaller because they're really compact and designed space accommodations. Like you couldn't stand up in a stateroom in a boat unless it's a big boat, not just like regular camper quality caliber boat. So I think that'd be, okay. I think that'd be pretty rough. You got nothing for that? You're okay having to crawl into your bed every night? <laughs> if I lived in a boat, I probably would be doing that anyway. Just because you'd be so wobbly because it's the, the water's rocking you? No, I just spend my time out on the on the deck drinking beers. Mm, high quality life here for your That's right. Your well, if I'm living life. on a boat, I guess we're just picturing different boats. Yeah, you're picking so. a big, nice boat. I'm picking camper quality boat. Okay. I don't know what that means because there's quality campers that are broken and there's quality boats that are broken. And to me... It's a different level. I'm not thinking about like some little dinky sailboat boat, but I'm not thinking about a giant yacht either, but I'm talking about one that's got enough room on it to like live. I think you get like a hot plate on your boat. Well, okay. So now they're, we're not even talking about them being equal. In my mind, <laughs> no, we they are. were equal. No. No, we are. I'm going to say no, you have, have $20,000. My, my boat has a refrigerator and a stove, just like your camper. No, but they don't have the same, even in their idealized versions, boats and campers don't have the same amenities to them. Okay. Like most boats don't have the ability to wash and dry clothes. Okay. 
which means you're going you're I mean, going I to agree. the laundromat to wash your clothes. I agree, but I guess to me, I was thinking of a boat that would have the similar amenities as an RV camper. Mm. Those don't exist like that. Yeah, they do. No, I'm no. You have to get to like yacht level to start getting like <laughs> laundry room on a boat. I don't know about that, but okay. I do. Have you ever been on a boat where you can sleep on? That, no. Yeah, I have. Okay. It, they're not that roomy. You have to get to like a really nice level of boat. So if I said, hey, we both got $20,000. You can go buy the best boat you can for twenty grand. i will buy the best camper I can for twenty grand. Well, but that wasn't the stipulation. I'm going to be. If you'd have said no, that, it would have been different because you can't buy a boat that you can sleep on for twenty grand. Yeah, you can. It won't be. No, it'll be, you it'll can't. be the kind that won't sail, which is how I started off the question. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes. You're like cheating the rules, man. I'm not. I'm not cheating the rules. What we're saying is we're trying to we're trying to present them as the same level of bumminess in terms of their quality. Boats and campers don't have the same amenities in any conditions ever. Yeah, yeah they do. That's fine. I'm gonna do. You've already I, no, conceded no, that you. I'm gonna do some googling. <laughs> I'll do some googling. It doesn't mean I haven't shopped and looked. Oh, I look, but that's fine. Yeah, that's why. I, okay, I, I think you're wrong. All right, you might be getting more women back to your boat than <laughs> I am to my camper. Not if it's a crappy boat like you're telling me I have. Well, you're not like it's, it's not even big enough for two people. Well, you're not making spaghetti dinners <laughs> for them. Yeah. Still. Thing is, you didn't ask me like your kids. Like we didn't talk about like. Hey, here's the other. Yeah, thing. I know. Well, I didn't think that was an option. It didn't come up. Yeah. You said me. You didn't say my family. Well, I don't know when we talked about the zombie apocalypse. Your first question was your kids. Oh, I know. And I was Those like, they, they got to go in a cage. Well, you put your kids in a cage. <laughs> I just took mine with me. Here's another kind of moving bit to this. Yeah. And that is when I guess it was like the third house I moved into. It was maybe like a mile from my parents' house, and our house sold really quickly, so we had to move out of it. And we're like, man, this is going to stink. We got to move out of this house into some rental house while the house we already bought is being fixed. Like, uh, We didn't actually mm-hmm. expect our house to sell like on day one, which it did. Yeah. yeah. It's the good and the bad, right? Yes. <laughs> so I guess the good at the time was my parents lived like a, maybe not even a mile away. And they had put their house on the market and had bought a house down in Kerrville, Texas, and they'd moved there. So their house was emptying on the market. And we're like, sweet, we'll just move in there, which was nice because that house was humongous. Yeah. And, and everything was great. Problem is, their house sold about six weeks before our house was done. And so we had to move out of my parents' house, too. And I was like, man, I do not want to move for a third time so I was like, can we just make it work? Can we just move in our other house and just like work around it? So we decided that's what we we're going to do. Problem was it, you couldn't live in it. Like it didn't have bathrooms yet. I mean, we didn't build it from scratch, but we demoed everything on the inside. A lot of it? Yeah, yeah, a lot of it. Interesting. Well, Michelle was traveling all the time. So she left Monday mornings and sometimes Sunday nights and would get back Friday nights. Oh, yeah. Okay. She was home two nights a week. And so we decided that what we would do is we would rent a motorhome. And it was like a 24-footer and just park it in the backyard. (laughs) And I lived in this motorhome for six weeks. Oh, God. Yeah. Because 24 foot's not very big. It wasn't very big. And 24 foot is small. We had a dog and two cats and me living in this camper trailer. 
And so like the litter box was underneath in the your kitchen backyard. table. Yeah, in my backyard. <laughs> and there were a couple of really terrible things that like I've had to empty a lot of RV waste sewage tanks in my day. Oh, yeah. But normally they had stations where you could do that. Yeah. I had to actually buy a very particular rolling bucket that I would have to dump my waste tank into, roll it to the front of my house where all my new neighbors could see me as I dumped my sewage down the clean-out drains in my front yard. <laughs> I mean, it was it was janky on the highest order. That's awesome. We've reached the point where I'm going to call today's episode a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 49 objects of design we would like to thank our media partners building design and construction for the gracious support of today's episode if you liked today's episode please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get buttery smooth new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks while you're there please go to whatever podcast listening app you use and leave us a five-star, now-I-want-that rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end. We'll share some outros from today's recording, if there are any. Be safe, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Like, oh. just... I'd basically just been dropping business <laughs> into the yard, into the yard. And then the big storm came <laughs> and just like washed it <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> That's so gross. And yet I still, I still chose a camper over a boat. That's an awesome note to end this. <laughs> on. Yeah, I know. Hmm. Talk about the poop deck. I know. it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Okay, on that... It seems like we always end up on those things, though, right? No. We're always, we end at the, we, in the bad part. I'm not sure about we on that one. Uh, I guess that is okay. all my stories, though. I was like, what do you mean? It wasn't me. I was just listening. Oh, my God. That was way longer than what I expected. Yeah. I'm hitting stop.